Good afternoon. My name is Andrea Petre, a professor at Central European University, Vienna. And you are listening to the podcast of uh, Central European University and the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, the subcommittee of history of the Second World War. And this is a very special podcast because it was prepared in cooperation with Beth Deborah, Vienna. So this is a podcast which covers heroism of Jewish women during the Second World War. And I had the privilege talking to Lori Weintraub, professor of history and the founding director of Wagner College Holocaust Center, Staten Island, New York, and Laura Morowitz, who is currently researching issues of art in Nazi Vienna about the different forms of Jewish women's heroism. Thank you for listening to us. And uh, here is the podcast. Welcome to the Bete Bora podcast. Bete Bora is a European network of Jewish women. We offer a platform for international exchange of feminist ideas. We talk with Jewish women about their aims, their activities and their achievements. With this, we want to make women more visible and strengthen their position in society in general and in the Jewish world. Good afternoon. You are listening to the Beth Deborah Vienna podcast on Jewish women in Europe. My name is Andrea Petter. I'm a professor at Central European University in Vienna, a founding member of Beth Deborah Vienna. In the today's episode, we are discussing the heroism of Jewish women during the Holocaust. The activities of women during the Holocaust has often been forgotten, erased, misunderstood, or intentionally distorted. Jewish women and those of all faiths fought with dignity, compassion, and courage to save others from the murderous Nazi regime in over 30 nations. Often overlooked, women as well as men played critical roles in uprisings against Nazis in over 50 ghettos, 18 forced labor camps, and five concentration camps, including Auschwitz. Women were critical to the Jewish underground and other resistant networks, both as armed fighters and as strategists and couriers of intelligence and false papers. Women played essential roles operating educational, cultural, and humanitarian initiatives. In other genocides, women also faced horrendous atrocities, yet distinguished themselves with resilience and acts of moral courage. From the groundbreaking 1983 conference on women and the Holocaust at Stern College to the 2018 symposium on women, the Holocaust and genocide at Seton Hill University, research on gender issues has grown exponentially. Innumerable books, conferences, panels, films, journals, special issues, and groups such as Remember the Women Institute now document the inspiring lives of female participants. Yet, there remain many untold stories of women fighting back against the Nazis with pistol or pen. The leadership strategies, networks of defiance and testimony of better-known activists, such as Itka Kepner-Kovner, Sivia Lubetkin, Latka Mead, Sarah Fortis, Gizi Fleischmann, Marie-Madeleine Fouquet, Nadezhda Popova, Habiba Reik, Edith Brooke, Fidel Dicker Brandes and Rosa Robota, among others, still merit far more attention. Their lives, too, should become part of the canon of the Holocaust study. Should, but they are not. How is our understanding of the Shoah and the central question of how it happened impacted and reconceptualized by knowing about the activities of fem- female resistors and rescuers? What are the obstacles, structural, intellectual, and religious ones, which are preventing the study of remarkable women in the Holocaust? In the today's episode, we are trying to find answers to these troubling questions. I have the honor to host 
two fantastic scholars and community activists, Laura Morovitz and Lori Weintrop from Wagner College, who are organizing a fascinating conference on this topic in June. This symposium hopes to create a new narrative around agency in the Shoah and other genocides, which may inspire transformative activism today. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much. Before we start, let me introduce them briefly. Laura Morovitz's scholarship has focused on a variety of places and questions in European modernism and currently focuses on issues of art in Nazi Vienna. She is the author of three books, Artistic Brotherhoods in the 19th Century with Will Wohen or SG 2000, Consuming the Past, the Medieval Revival of the Fantasy Echo of France with Elizabeth Emery, SG 2003, The Miracles of Prato with Lori Lico Albanese, uh, uh, William Morrow and Harper Corins, 2009. And she's currently working on two manuscripts, co-edited with Megan Brando Faller, Erasures and Eradications in Modern Viennese Art, Architecture and Design, Force Coming by Routwich, 2023, Art Exhibit and Erasure in Nazi Vienna, which is under review. Examining issues of nationalism, consumerism, historiography, gender, and collective memory, Dr. Morovitz's articles and reviews have appeared in the Art Bulletin, Art Journal, the Oxford Art Journal, the Journal of History of Collections, the Journal of Popular Film and Television, and Cultural Critique. She has presented her works at museums around the world, including the National Gallery in London, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, uh, the, uh, the, the Museum of Fine Arts in France. Her works have been translated into French, Spanish, German, Italian, Catalan, Portuguese, and Turkish. Currently, Dr. Morovitz is at work on a manuscript examining several art exhibits held in Vienna during the Third Reich. For this work, she was awarded a National Endowment of the Humanities stipend in 2016. Dr. Lori Weintraub is a professor of history and the founding director of Wagner College Holocaust Center, Staten Island, New York. She received her BA from Princeton University and her MA and PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, Professor Weintraub has taught, has taught courses on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, art, theater, film, and the Holocaust, France and the Francophone world, leadership studies, global cinema, and immigration history. She is currently editing Eyewitnesses to History, Documents of the Holocaust, and completing a project on women resistance leaders in the Holocaust. She is co-author of the original play, Rise Up, Young Holocaust Heroes, and curator of the exhibit, Rescue and Resistance, among others at the Wagner College Holocaust Center. She is co-editor of Beyond Bystanders, Educational Leadership for a Human Culture in a Globalizing Reality, 2017, and Maternalism Reconsidered, Motherhood, Welfare, and Social Policy in the 20th Century, 2012. As a director of the Holocaust Center, she has connected over 5,000 youths in New York and New Jersey to Holocaust survivors to learn lessons of empathy and courage in the face of racism and anti-Semitism. She has received awards for community building and interface social justice activism from Island Voice, the Pride Center of Staten Island, and the Albanian Islamic Cultural Center. Lori was named Community Builder of the Year in 2003 by the New York Center for Interpersonal Development and is in 2019 Staten Island Women of Achievement. She is the proud mother of two daughters, Joella and Sophia. So thank you again uh, for your time. Our listeners already recognize that this is a fantastic and unique opportunity to talk to two uh, distinguished uh, and uh, well-published uh, researcher. So how did you find this topic, heroines, or rather the topic found you? So my question is, why heroines? This framework of heroism has been criticized so much recently. What do you think that this framework brings to the existing scholarship. Thank you so much, Andrea, for this um, great introduction and opportunity to speak about the topic of heroines of the Holocaust um, in advance of the 2022 June symposium. 
Um, we are very committed to the term heroines of the Holocaust as a tool to encourage us to rethink the ways that Jews and non-Jews have responded to the Nazis and the decisions that they made. It elevates the agency of all Jews in the face of the inhumanity and suffering during World War II, not only women. Too often the idea of resistance is limited to the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. Yet in interviewing dozens of Holocaust survivors on Staten Island, in listening to their tragic family narratives with my students at local schools, I heard so many moments of overcoming fear and of heroic decision-making. So my understanding of resistance began to change and grow. One survivor, Rachel Roth, used storytelling to lift the morale of women in Madonic while they were watching a hanging of a girl who had tried to escape. She had survived as an eyewitness. Rachel had survived as an eyewitness to the Warsaw Ghetto uprising when she was only 16. There were men and women who survived because they crossed national borders or hid as Christian. These are many examples of women's roles in the resistance, which particularly stood out to me. And I'm gonna just mention two moments when I felt I had a particular calling to this term, heroines of the Holocaust. Um, in 2017, I went to Israel on a research uh, trip to the ghetto fighters house for the first time, Lachamei uh, HaGetaot. And when I asked them about Zivia Lebetkin and other women who were in the resistance, they pointed to, to 3,000 dossiers and photographs of women in the resistance. And during one of my breaks, I decided to go visit the, the grave of Zivia Lebetkin, the highest ranking woman in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. I'm not sure how many have gone to the cemetery there where so many fighters are buried, but certainly it should be at least as well known as the grave of Oscar Schindler or Hannah Senesch. And on her grave, it has only one word, Zivia, four Hebrew letters, not Zuckerman or Lebetkin, her last names. As many of you know, Zivia was the code name for the underground in Poland. And so this, this um, moment, and then Zivia's definition of heroism as not being based on any one individual, not a Yitzchak or a Fromka, but the strength of the movement and shared values, um, this notion of um, a movement and togetherness and fighting back and resistance, um, I think is incredibly important and understudied. And it really came to me um, at that moment. But then there were many other moments. For example, um, in reading a play about Eli from Elie Wiesel, um, which was written in Yiddish for the 25th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. He had the key figure, the resistance fighter was a woman named Chava, which means life. So in many places I kept um, turning to both traditional and non-traditional Holocaust sources. And each time this idea, as you got further and further back, um, recognizing the role of women. Um, we understand the notion of heroism has been misused throughout history and is still misused. Yet in classes I teach on leadership and history, feminist theories of the civil rights and human rights movements have argued for reclaiming the word heroism away from soldiers in war or firefighters depicted as masculine and using it for women who take on injustice through nonviolent resistance. I believe deeply in that mission. So I am collecting examples of Holocaust narratives by women who use the term heroism. And I'll just say um, Gusta uh, Davidson from Krakow, Justina's narrative is one example where she says that every night the movement talked about the heroic exploits of their members and that that gave them um, deep satisfaction, courage and hope. Overall, I believe that this term advances our understanding of responses to the final solution, which I see as the core question in Holocaust studies. And I'll just um, add a little bit, but first I wanna say thank you so much, Andrea, for inviting us, especially since your own work has done so much to advance our understanding of the Holocaust and women in the Holocaust and your, um, your role and your uh, uh, guidance in the conference has really been indispensable. Um, so just to, to briefly add to what Lori says, um, you know, there are many scholars and we understand that, that there are many scholars who feel that the term heroine perpetuates a kind of mythic or romantic view of these women. Um, but as Lori mentioned, they really were hero heroic in the fact that they committed unfathomable acts of bravery. Um, 
you know, these are words that exist in our language, hero and heroine. And I, uh, I think we feel that if we're not going to apply them to these women, then they probably shouldn't exist at all. Um, and then just two brief further things, um, as Laurie kind of touched on, the term hero is routinely applied to men. And if we refuse to use it for women, we somehow are perpetuating the idea that only men are capable of acts of heroism. Uh, and then just a, a kind of final thought is that um, even if it isn't a term embraced by the academy, um, it, it really does shift the way that people think about these acts. Um, in general, people want to know about heroes. Um, you know, there are wide audiences that are interested in knowing about heroes. Children want to hear about them. They want to be like, uh, like them. So in that sense, language really matters. Um, and so we, we, we did think carefully about it. Um, and for all of these reasons, we, we do want to reclaim the word. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This is really very convincing, very thoughtful and very strategic. I think. Uh, so, but uh, in the introduction, I was uh, uh, mentioning that there are lots of wide spots in the scholarship as far as Jewish women's life stories are concerned. And this whole conference you are organizing for June 2022 basically plans to map these uh, uh, women's life stories. So where do you see these wide spots in the scholarship? as far as Jewish women's life stories are concerned? Yeah, that's a great question because there is a lot of um, really good scholarship on Jewish women. Um, to name a few, uh, Nahama Tech, Lenore Weitzman, Sharon Giva, Dahlia Offer, Judy Bommel Schwartz, Rochelle Seidel, um, and others. Um, and, and yet there's still space um, for more in terms of thinking about particularly the notion of uh, resistance and strategies for survival. So what we're trying to do is look at how after the Nazis come to power and persecution escalates, women are involved in decision-making and leadership. Those are the two themes um, that we feel even in prior uh, scholarship about Jewish women have not been as, as central. And the notion of leadership, whether they're teachers, social workers, or mothers, um, and yes, there have been others who discuss sending children on the kinder transport or seeking visas around the globe. And there's new scholarship by Wolf Gruner and Atina Grossman, but there's still a lot more to do to bring home this notion of both spiritual and not, you know, nonviolent and violent resistance and the kind of continuum between them. So for example, in ordinary survivor testimony, this attitude of defiance and courage, I'm going to go back to uh, the, I cited Rachel Roth in Madonic, but back in the Warsaw Ghetto, her mother had insisted that as a younger child of 14, that she be educated, quote, to defy that scum Hitler. And that's also a phase that Wolf Gruner has found in court documents. So I'd like more visibility on women's strengths and not only their vulnerability, whether it's um, looking not just at Janusz Korczak, but also Ms. Stefa, Stefania Wilczynski, I hope I pronounced her name right, and other female orphanage and soup kitchen directors, um, and those who flew planes in the uh, Soviet army, like the White Rose of Stalingrad, um, uh, and the other 100,000 Jewish women in the Soviet army, and those who threw Molokov cocktails, like Zipporah Lehrer. Um, and I think we should know some of these women's names. Um, to, to, you know, to the same extent that we know the names of other, you know, heroic figures related to Holocaust um, activism and education. Um, I'm arguing we need to see women's strategic decision-making and leadership in the contest of escalating inhumanity. We need more histo histories where we see individual women, but within networks. We need to know their names, um, but also I'm a strong believer in knowing their words and testimony such as the poetry of Marianne Cohn in France and of Gola Mir in Krakow. Um, then I have three more quick points. Um, we want, I wanna see us weave together more the interwar leadership roles of women and their later experiences. Um, women in their twenties who were leaders of youth groups played important roles in social and cultural organizations in the ghettos. Then there were doctors, nurses, journalists, and even lawyers. How did their training and professional skills affect their ability to survive? 
And let's look beyond Poland to Greece and Morocco and Jewish women. Um, and in some cases to follow what these women did after war, the war, such as Vlad Gamid, to perpetuate Holocaust memory or human rights. Um, secondly, um, I'd really like to see more attention to alliances between Jewish and non-Jewish women. Um, I, I really think that we need to examine non-Jewish women in the resistance, such as Charlotte Delbo, again, well-known in France uh, and maybe in Europe, but not in the United States, um, who returns to France to fight in the resistance, loses her husband, and is one of the few from her convoy who survives Auschwitz. Another is Noor Khan, who's gotten some attention in Britain and India as a Muslim woman who was killed in Dachau. Um, Jewish resistance fighters often mention the names of non-Jewish women who helped them. And this element of interfaith networks has hardly gotten any attention at all from scholars. Um, and I think just to add that the scholarship on, on these women heroines, and actually in heroines in general, you know, they don't appear out of nowhere, but that their early experiences are very, very crucial being parts of these groups where they were given leadership roles, um, such as the many, many Zionist groups where these women had incredible, um, you know, positions of power and, and scholars like uh, Avihu Ronan has done so much to clarify. This is really essential for them to emerge later as resistors. And this is an important and crucial point, not only for us to understand what happened, but if we also wanna use this as a model for future leaders, um, you know, it starts early. It starts even in, in childhood with shaping future leaders. Thank you. So, uh, but uh, it's not that rosy, right? There are several obstacles, institutional, intellectual, religious obstacles of studying Jewish women during the Holocaust. So how do you see these obstacles? And if you see any changes recently besides uh, this groundbreaking conference you are organizing uh, in June? So you're absolutely right. For, for decades, there have been obstacles, you know, from all sides, um, a refusal to fully acknowledge women's acts of courage, um, you know, to canonize it, a desire not to see them as heroes. Um, but nevertheless, as, as Lori mentioned before, there's been so much work, an enormous groundswell of work over the last decade, and especially in the last uh, decade, the last five years, um, conferences, symposia, books, um, you know, some of these, um, some of the obstacles have included a lot less scholarly attention. There are lots of materials that have not been translated into widely read languages. Um, and really one of the obstacles is the bottom line, I guess, is that the stories of these women are still not part of the standard texts, right? They're still not part of the, the texts that are widely disseminated. Um, and this dovetails in general with the, with the lack of resistance, the lack of attention that's been paid to resistance. Um, I was pretty shocked recently. I was reading in a book that was published in 2019 on art and resistance in Germany. And I was reading the introduction by a major press, which noted that um, there's really, quote, still no consensus among scholars on the notion of Jewish resistance in the Holocaust, end quote. And I thought, really? I, I think there is pretty much consensus. I think that, you know, there's an enormous body of literature giving evidence of all kinds of evidence. And if the authors had really bothered to, to look into this, um, you know, it would have been really clear. So, so we cannot take it at, at all for granted. Um, I think another obstacle in the United States is that there just has been less attention to Eastern Europe where there was such a special role for women, um, you know, in places like Poland and other places, these kind of networks of women activists in, in Zionist groups. Um, and of course, you know, when we think about women in, in, in Roma or, you know, by, by comparison, Armenian women or women of color, they've just gotten less attention. Their histories have gotten less attention in general. Um, and just to add to that, of course, there was a reluctance on the part of some of these women for reasons we can understand to tell their stories. They wanted to get on with the task of living, of having families, of trying to forget. Um, some of them wrote their memoirs much later when they lived in a world that was more open to hearing what they had to say. Um, and I would just say then some of the obstacles that you so rightly point out 
are just bound up with the silence around specific, specific gender issues like sexual violence um, that women faced in the Holocaust in general. Laura, do you wanna add anything? Um, yes, in terms of obstacles. Um, I, I think the, you know, the historiography of the Holocaust is a topic in and of itself, how there have been shifting sets of priorities. Um, and sometimes when I ask the question, like, why can we name the perpetrators and not the resistors? Um, you know, one obvious answer is that it is important to look at the perpetrators. Um, you know, that has been a central focus to understanding how the Holocaust happened. Um, and so we need to understand the steps that were taken to enact the final solution. Um, but the question is, you know, how much can we learn from sort of shifting that focus um, and thinking about, you know, in terms of how 6 million Jews were killed and how did, um, who knew about industrial style killing, who knew about shooting by bullets. And it's, it's really quite astonishing that, um, you know, that this has been debated without attention to these women's memoirs. Um, some of them written during the war, um, like, like Gusta Davidson's memoir, like Chaya uh, Klinger, um, that, that, um, that, that these memoirs have this information about when the Zivia Lubetkin's memoir opens with learning about Chelmno and Ponery. Um, and uh, Sarah Genaita in, in Lithuania, she speaks at length about sort of the shadow that was cast as she saw thousands of people being marched to Ponery as inspiring her to resist. And so it's really that, um, that, that we don't have to take the focus away from mass killing and perpetrators. We just need to look at these new angles around it. Um, in terms of rescue and resistance, um, right, Yehuda Bauer um, long ago came up with this term Amida, right, standing up, which, which um, uh, has been accepted as sort of a general explanation of the continuum of resistance. Um, but again, when we looked at resistance and rescue, um, it's only really recently, for example, that Mordechai Paul wrote a, a really I mean, groundbreaking book um, from his former experience with righteous Gentiles. Um, he wrote the groundbreaking book on Jews who were rescuers, and he included quite a lot of women. And but that's only in the past about, I think, five years that that has really that shift has begun to happen. Um, until then, um, despite the fact that there are equal numbers, he assures me, of male and female um, rescuers, righteous Gentiles, there's at least 12,000 female righteous Gentiles. The examples we heard about were really Wallenberg, Raul Wallenberg and Oscar Schindler, obviously because of Steven Spielberg's film, um, rather than Vlad Gamid, um, or, or other women who were involved in rescue Jewish and non-Jewish women. Um, and even I, um, just this week in Israel, they created the square in honor of um, Sugihara, Chiun Sugihara, um, in our Holocaust Center, we have Chiun um, and Yukiko Sugihara. We honored them together um, because we see the decision-making, the, the risk that he put his family under as something that was a decision that both of them um, under, you know, took on. Um, and that it's only right, and she has been recognized as a righteous Gentile. So if I'm not mistaken, I don't think that that is recognized in the current ceremony in Israel. Um, so in terms of rescue and resistance, there have been obstacles. And then finally, um, for all, you know, all the amazing work that women and feminist historians have done, I think it's important to say that their first priority and urgency was documenting um, other kinds of issues like motherhood and sexuality, pregnancy and sexual violence. These felt very universal to the first generation of women's historians. Um, and they were uncovering things that nobody had ever talked about before. Um, you know, we have one, at least one film about the Holocaust, The Zookeeper's Wife, that does talk about sexual violence, but until that's very recent, I think 2017. Um, but the resistance elements of fighters 
it appeared in the story, but it was just less central. And, um, and even when it is discussed, um, these women are seen as being somewhat um, exceptional. Um, but I, I think if you have 12,000 female righteous Gentiles, if you have 100 women fighting in the Warsaw Ghetto and, um, and the other ghettos in, in Europe, Bialystok and, and Krakow, if you have um, 100,000 uh, Jewish Soviet women pilots and many more other non-Jewish women in the allied military forces, I think that we have um, a lot of work to do to shift how we tell the story of how six million Jews were killed and how um, you know the rest of the world reacted, um, including that the world was silent many times, but these women were not. Um, so I think that's really an important point. Yeah, this the inspiration that uh, one can take from these extraordinary life stories is really, really important. So uh, uh, why do you think this framework of heroism is inspiring for a new generation of women and scholars, both, both uh, very active in uh, communities, especially Lori. So how do you use this uh, uh, inspiration in your pedagogical work, in your uh, teaching, in your research? Yes, thanks for asking. Um, the motto of, our, of the Wagner College Holocaust Center is inspire courage. Um, and that very much came out of meeting um, meetings between the survivors on Staten Island in New York and the students in the grades, you know, third grade through high school and college. Um, I just, you could see how, how both the survivors told their stories through a lens of resilience um, and how the students really took it that way that there had been persecution, there had been intolerance, much worse than what they have experienced in their own lives in 21st century America. They really understood how much suffering the survivors had gone through and yet how they had the courage to, um, you know, either in, in go into hiding, smuggle themselves across borders, um, in some cases smuggle weapons, or um, just to be an eyewitness to uh, the uprising in Auschwitz. We have one survivor who was um, uh, in Canada. Uh, she found her mother's shoe after she'd been gassed. I mean, how do you have the courage to go on um, after you see that? And you're, you're so young, you're only 15 or 16 years old. So, um, so that is one of the elements um, that we put alongside Zahar and Remembrance. Um, and it's because we believe that this is a way to inspire young people to be upstanders um, by fo focusing on the, the training, the group work, the teamwork, the memoir writing, the, you know, the very many decisions that had to be made in a situation of crisis, um, that, that we can help students understand that being an upstander is both very simple, right? A lot of these um, heroic women did not want to be called heroes. Um, Anna, um, Anne Frank's rescuer, Meep Gies said, you know, I would rather be known as an ordinary housewife because I don't want anyone to think you have to be extraordinary um, in order to resist, in order to be an upstander and, and care for people who are different from you. Um, but the truth is that if you look at her biography, there are many elements of, um, you know, her leaving her home city, um, her, you know, learning about the resistance. There's, in fact, it's not, it, it is, it is a complicated process to become a leader. Um, and, and, and that is one of the lessons that by looking at these women's lives and um, seeing how during the Holocaust, right before the Holocaust, what enabled them um, to be resistors, I, I think it will inspire a generation of young people to be upstanders. Um, in terms of your question, um, Andrea, about the new generation of women and scholars, you know, we are definitely living at a time where some of the gender bound notions are being dissolved. And there are, you know, many women leaders in the world and, you know, young women like Malala and Greta Thunberg, who are really the exact age, right, of some of these resistors. Um, and they're being finally being given a lot of attention. I think until recently we lived in a world where people assumed that, you know, all 
all girls at that age, you know, their heads were caught up in one thing, right? And it was, you know, uh, you know, getting getting married or or you know something absurd like that. Um, so you know, the, there's been such a shift. I mean, you know, when you have women like Etta Robel, right, who was a partisan in the forest who refused to cook, refused to clean, um, you know, commanded a unit of seventy people we have to think about what doors that opens for a young girl listening, right. To have a, a role model like that. Um, you know, the whole story of the Holocaust in, in a way changes when you do this. Um, you know, another example would be the Kasharyot, right. These courier, courier girls as they're called, right. And how their efforts kept thousands of people alive in those circumstances. Um, you know, the, the story of the Holocaust is not, there are overlapping things, but it isn't the same, uh, you know, for men and women, just even something like looking at the artwork that was made in, in ghettos and concentration camps, we can see that women are focusing on different things. Um, often things like bathing or the centrality of female caretaking. Um, and so it really opens up a space to consider things that, that may not have come to light. Um, and that, that in itself is, is really inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but really very inspiring. So uh, let's move to the uh, methodological issues of uh, doing uh, cutting edge scholarship. Both of you are doing cutting edge, interesting scholarship. And uh, so what uh, you already mentioned some of the uh, issues related to writing uh, uh, women's lives and uh, women's stories uh, during the Holocaust and uh, some uh, difficulties are connected to the lack of sources. Some of them are related to the issues of um, in, intimate uh, relations. So uh, why do you think that it's so difficult to study and to write life histories of remarkable Jewish women of the past? Well, it's interesting um, that International Women's Day, March 8th, um, I think it was last year, the year before, fell out roughly the same week as Purim, um, which also has a female heroine, um, is a holiday that's a female heroine. And it happens that one of the women I was studying, Sarah Ganaita, um, was asked by the Soviet partisan commander to give a speech for International Women's Day um, in 1944. And she spoke about how... Um, uh, in getting ready to celebrate that some women uh, put on dresses, other women put on their trousers and you couldn't tell them they didn't look any different than men. Um, and her speech, um, how the unit grew from having four women to having um, over a dozen women, how um, in particular she wrote, um, we trained ourselves um, to use the weapons, to use um, uh, guns. And it's interesting because, um, first of all, that is she is writing women's history in 1944 about women in the Holocaust. So these sources are there. Um, but you also have, for example, um, Hirsch Glick's uh, poem the, about partisan women that he wrote in honor of Vitka Kempner. Um, so Vitka Kempner being the first uh, act of resistance in Lithuania by the Jews in blowing up a German train. In his poem, he talks about um, a girl with a beautiful beret um, under the stars who he's teaching how to shoot a gun. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's not to say that it didn't happen both ways. Some women taught themselves to shoot a gun. Sometimes the men taught them how to shoot, um, how to, you know, with weapons training, there wasn't enough weapons to begin with, but you sometimes you have to reconcile, you know, these conflicting sources. Um, what was the, you know, more common way that women got involved? And uh, you, you might, and in fact, I think Judy Battalion in her new book, in the light of, in light of days, um, about the resist, re resistance fighters, female resistance fighters in Hitler's ghetto, um, as you know, which is options for a Spielberg film. Um, has the potential to revolutionize all of these questions by sparking a whole movement. Um, it's almost like a zeitgeist. There's a lot of books um, and films coming out now about female spies in World War II, um, not, you know, non-Jewish, um, in, including um, this Muslim woman uh, 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 who was killed in Dachau. And so I think, 
to some extent that the sources have always been there, but they weren't considered important enough to look at. Um, uh, you know, Spielberg's uh, film sparked a whole era of collecting oral histories, but only in the past, like I would say five years, um, has there really been the same kind of use of the archives um, and with that use of the archives, for example, at our mini conference, we'll talk about later, um, one of the women is writing about Sobibor and the, uh, I think there were eight women that escaped Sobibor and she's studying their life stories. So a new generation of scholars are looking for these Jewish women's stories. And I, and I know that we will find them in many, um, in many places once we start looking. It actually just reminds me that in college, um, which was, uh, around 1980, in the 1980s. Um, I had Natalie Zeman Davis as one of my professors. I'm, I'm not sure if you know, she's the one who worked on The Return of Martin Gare. Um, I was at Princeton and she had us read um, Gluckel, um, the memoir of Gluckel of, of Chalam, I think is that the 16th or 17th century, 17th century, who was a female merchant. And it actually was that moment that I wanted to become a historian. Because for the first time after so many years of studying different kinds of history, there was this strong Jewish woman um, who had written a memoir and who was like, who was a role model to me. Um, and that doesn't mean that I didn't love many other kinds and admired many other figures in history. I'm a huge admirer of Nelson Mandela. I teach him in, in every class I can. Um, also for his for his courage and inspiration. But there's something I think about, you know, I think it's important for this, you know, for history to embrace many different leaders, many different, you know, not that everyone has to be strong, um, but it's just, I think this kind of nuance, this kind of new attention to women um, and the Holocaust uh, really has the potential to transform the field. Um, I, I'm hoping so, and not just the field, but also public opinion because people really pay attention to the Holocaust. It is, you know, one of the most important events of the entire modern period. Um, and so if you're able to reframe how people think about the Holocaust, you can really reframe, um, you know, pretty much everything. So, so I, I do hope that these stories of Jewish women will be uh, no longer neglected. Let's, you know, there's, there's every period starting with Esther um, and we just have to, uh, find examples of Jewish and, and women and ask many, many questions of them, including, you know, more religious Jewish women, less religious, the ones who were communists, uh, the ones who had, you know, close relations with non-Jews and, and just start to, you know, really explode this topic. This conference, uh, which is upcoming in June 2022, has been mentioned several times, but uh, uh, this is a long story. And uh, I was wondering what made this conference possible intellectually, politically, scholarly, and of course, financially, because organizing a conference, even if uh, uh, you have got unlimited resources is really a difficult uh, enterprise. So how did you decide to uh, make this conference a reality? So I want to start by saying it was definitely Lori's idea, um, stemming from her, what you can see is an incredible passion or growing immersion in this topic, um, including her teaching of resistance. And she came to me um, and, uh, you know, to use a word that Lori just used before, um, there does seem to be something in the zeitgeist right now that has made it the moment for teaching about women resistors. You know, you can't turn on your computer um, without seeing another conference or another symposium or another, um, you know, book that is somehow touching on this topic. Um, there are literally thousands of grad students um, and senior scholars investigating all aspects of the Holocaust right now in, in regard to gender. Um, I, you know, I think to, to piggyback a little bit on the former question, um, there was somehow this absurd notion you know, 20 years ago that somehow the, the Holocaust was too universal um, and too serious, right? To, to bring in issues of gender as if somehow those were, were separate. Um, I think one really important contribution to the, to the um, 
ability of the conference to happen now is the importance of intersectionality in general in study. Um, it almost makes it impossible not to ask how categories of gender or ethnicity uh, manifest themselves or religion even, right, to work together to make the Holocaust a to have made it a very different experience and to manifest different forms of resistance as well. I, I think it's related to the fact that we're moving into a new era now where near nearly all of the witnesses are gone. And we do have to raise different questions, go back to the material, think of different ways of, of learning about the Holocaust, which makes something like this conference um, possible. I think also with the current political climate in both Europe and with the four years of Trump, there has been a real preoccupation with fascism uh, and especially with the question of how you prevent it before it's too late. And this really raises the issue of resistance and courage in different ways, right? I mean, I don't, perhaps it's not a coincidence that the resistance against Trump in the United States was definitely largely led by women. Um, we know this uh, as a fact, where, where I live, there's a very active political group called NJ11 that literally began as four women sitting around a kitchen table asking what they could do. Um, and by 2018, it had impacted, um, you know, it had grown to thousands of people, um, men and women, but again, the majority of women. Uh, and this had a major impact on the state um, as well as national elections. In terms of financially, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, no matter how much money you raise, um, you know, there's there's always uh, gaps and more money so that you can do more with it. Um, I do think that one of the things that made this um, conference capable of, of, of getting some grants and, um, you know, we have this wonderful sponsorship from the, from the, um, the German consulate in New York is that the conference looks backwards into history, but it also has a lot of ramifications going forward um, in some of the things that we've outlined. Um, I think also, you know, just like with books and texts, there's a real hunger now to find stories about people who weren't just victims, um, but people who were the agents of their own stories. Um, and, you know, we don't really need another film about Oscar Schindler saving people. Um, you know, we do need a, a film about Rosa Roboto, right, organizing these women to collect tiny bits of um, gunpowder um, that were eventually, that was eventually used to blow up the crematoria, um, crematoria for Auschwitz. So I think all of those things coming together really did make it the moment for this symposium to happen. I'll, I'll just very quickly add that there's um, uh, two or three things. One is that we did find um, sponsorship from the German consulate in New York, the USC Shoah Foundation, the Fondation Memorial de la Shoah, and then a lot of local sponsors like the Staten Island Trial Lawyers Association and um, the seed money from the Wagner College High Society, which is an umbrella group of Jewish and non-Jewish Staten Islanders who are committed to seeing uh, Holocaust studies flourish on Staten Island, recognizing its importance, um, you know, to, to, to modern life. And so this does build on our work with local schools, but we wanted to go further and create more of an international effort to elevate the topic of um, women and resistance. And then secondly, we were fortunate that this topic resonated. We put out a call for papers and we got over a hundred scholars from all over the world. In the end, there's um, uh, scholars from 10 different countries and quite a number of scholars from Israel. And then through both um, USC and Bar-Ilan University, getting into different networks. And also the Museum of Jewish Heritage is only five miles away. Um, it's also in New York City and it's one of the largest um, institutions in the world. And, and they have helped us by giving us a platform to talk about heroines of the Holocaust. So um, many different organizations have contributed to, you know, to, to, to the success. And we just, we really hope that a lot of people will come in person, um, both the presenters, there's 50 presenters, but also the general public and of course, particularly teachers. Um, and hopefully it will inspire many books and films. 
Right. Uh, the global pandemic forced you to postpone this conference. Originally, this was scheduled for 2021, but there was a mini conference. And I encourage the listeners to look for the recordings of that uh, mini conference uh, on the internet. So what kind of feedback have you received after this small conference? And uh, how did this feedback modify, if modified or change this planned conference? So I would say the first thing is less is more, right? Um, we, learned, we learned how much could be conveyed in five minutes. I mean, it's really pretty amazing when people are focused. So I would say, you know, one thing is, Talks don't need to be a half an hour or 40 minutes to be important, right? And to be sort of groundbreaking. Um, the second thing is, I think even the mini conference, you know, we had six speakers. Really, it was kind of startling the, the breadth and scale of women's resistance and rescue, you know, in every conceivable place and every conceivable circumstance. And I think it, it definitely helped us to see the link between um, for example, you know, some of the strategies of women in the Armenian genocide and then in the, in the, um, in the Holocaust. And this is really, really important to us. We want to make sure that, you know, one of the, the, the aspects of the conference is to acknowledge these very important comparisons um, with, other, with other genocides, um, that there are a lot of points of interconnection. Um, and then I would say also from the very positive feedback that we've gotten, you know, both during the conference, because we had that very long chat going on, um, and after that, you know, both the general audience and scholars are really, really, they're ready and, and hungry to receive these stories. Um, so it was, it was very, very validating. And it really, um, you know, if anything, it just made us even more excited for the symposium that's coming up this summer. Yeah, I think this is a fantastic closing uh, word. Uh, rest, we are really looking forward to this uh, conference and I wish you and all of us uh, luck and courage and resilience in these difficult times. Thanks a lot for your time and follow, please listeners, follow the announcements about this conference. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for your interest. Our next Beta Borg podcast will come out in a month. In order not to miss it, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook or on our website, bet-deborah.net. Goodbye and stay well. Thank you.